Al Jazeera Podcasts. Hi, Malika here. As you may know, this week marked one year since two devastating earthquakes struck Turkey and Syria. And here at The Take, we've been following the lives of people affected by the disasters. And we've created an online interactive experience where you can hear their voices and see what they've gone through over the past year. To check it out, go to aljazeera.com forward slash earthquakes and let us know what you think. We're on social at AJE Podcasts. And now, on with today's show. Today, how are survivors of the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria faring now? One year ago this week, two earthquakes changed everything for thousands of people. Entire neighborhoods leveled, more than 50,000 killed. So what has this past year been like for those who survived? I will never imagine that one day I will be reporting about the disaster that killed my own friends. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. On February 6, 2023, a pair of earthquakes struck southern Turkey and northern Syria, leaving devastation in their wake. Today, we're talking to two Al Jazeera journalists who were there about what this past year has been like for them and the people they've reported on. Rasul Sardar, who you just heard, is one of Al Jazeera's senior international correspondents. He's deeply familiar with the areas struck hardest in the disaster. I am from the city of Adyaman in Turkey, which was one of the worst hit cities by the earthquakes. The rising death toll makes the quake the worst in Turkish modern history. Turkey's president referred to the quake as, quote, the disaster of the century. I was at home in Istanbul when the earthquake struck. Uh, quite early in the morning, I received a call from the news desk and I have been informed about the earthquakes. Rasul was deployed to Adyaman, a city of around 260,000 people in southeastern Turkey. The destruction in my hometown, the city that I was born and raised in, was immense. I was quite shocked to see the city center is almost completely gone. Building after building, block after block, were collapsed. I didn't lose anyone from my immediate family, but I lost some good friends of mine, my high school friends, and some distant relatives. Many of the familiar faces from the city were gone forever. So the story was quite personal for me. Rescuers here are now hearing fever voices from under the rubble. They are gradually shifting from finding bodies to clearing the debris and providing the essential goods and services to tens of thousands who have survived. It was impossible, uh, really, not to think of them each time when I was reporting. Resul Serdar, Al Jazeera, Adiaman, Southern Turkey. So many bright and great people were just gone. I knew that I will not be able to meet them during summers when I visit my family in hometown anymore. They will not answer my calls. 
and I won't hear their voices again. It was quite a weird, a painful feeling. It was extremely painful. The rescue operations here in the city of Adyaman are still continuing. However, right here, you can see that we are just in front of rubble, a collapsed building. And over there, it's written, it's controlled, it's checked. So that means that the rescue teams have checked this building and there is no one alive there. I tried my best to give a proper sense of the scale of the destruction caused by the earthquake uh, through my reporting, not only in my hometown, but also from Kahraman Marash, Hatay, Syria, and Gaziantep, which each of them have suffered from tremendous losses. Rizul said that those days were full of unimaginable heartbreak. One story that stuck with him was that of a woman he met in the city of Kahraman Marash as she waited outside her home in freezing temperatures to find out the fate of family members trapped in the rubble. Zahide has been waiting here for more than 80 hours, hoping to find her loved ones. Her son, daughter-in-law, and grandchild are still under this rubble. Report on this so that people know my pain. My dear ones are burning under this rubble. As the sun sets, a body is found. Her son has been pulled out from under the rubble, but he's not alive. The screams of the mothers, fathers, wives, children, at the moment of seeing their loved ones dead, after waiting for days in a hope to see them alive, was just extremely difficult to handle. I have never seen that much of dead bodies in my entire life. I have covered several wars and disasters across the globe, including the war in Syria, Ukraine, Iraq, and so on. Every collapsed building was a graveyard. Dead bodies were being put in black uh, plastic covers and carried to the morgues or cemeteries. And those who have survived were being served food. So it was quite surrealistic to see how death and life were so intertwined. The scale of was just apocalyptical. In so many cases, it was almost impossible to find proper words to utter the pain and to describe the situation on the ground while I was reporting. For Al Jazeera correspondent Sami Zaydan, Turkey is full of memories. My connection with Turkey goes back full to my childhood. I spent parts of my childhood in Turkey, and I have lots of friends there. Sami flew into Istanbul the day before the earthquake shook the region. I woke up the next morning to this terrible news. He hadn't come to work, but he was quickly assigned to report live from the epicenter. There, he met people like the Kurtz family from Kahraman Marash in the south. And the credit should go to my producer, Umut, who I was talking with her and saying, can we get in touch? At that time, there were, you were starting to hear about people being pulled out of the rubble, right? And pulled out alive after surviving how many days and this kind of process went on. And I was talking with her about getting in touch with someone. And then she managed to get in touch with the Kurt family. 
who had this extraordinary, it was almost unbelievable when she was telling me the details of this family. It was something like, is this for real? Did this really happen? And so this family was stuck under the rubble and most of them survived except the youngest son, Bilal. This is what's left of what the Kurt family once called home. The powerful earthquake reduced an entire compound of towers to dust. Underneath, Fatma, Adil and their three children endured ten hours of agony. A few days ago, Sammy got back in touch with Fatma, the mother of the Kurt's family. She told him they'd been having trouble finding a sense of normalcy over the past year. I asked them, you know, how is life now? They, it's usually the first thing that comes up is that we're still, we're still on an emotional roller coaster processing the feelings of loss when they lose someone. So they haven't moved back into their building. Their building hasn't been rebuilt yet because the construction effort is still ongoing. But they've been, the government has housed them. They've been taken care of for their immediate needs. The husband is working again, but you get the feeling that you can't really say life has turned back to normal for these people because they're still dealing with that. Another friend of mine who lost his brother, it's a similar story, he said, you know, we're just dealing with the pain of loss and particularly for my parents. All of a sudden, everyone will go from happy to, to really sad, you know, and the mood can just crash. And that's what happened on the phone with Fatma. I started talking to her and she, you know, as she started to recount the experiences, she told me, you know, it's snowing today and that reminds me of the earthquake and reminds me of Bilal. It brings all those memories back, you know, and you get the feeling that although I think the authorities are, are doing a good job in, in taking care of their immediate needs, but there are some scars which are still very much there. The mental landscape has been torn by this earthquake in ways that are very hard for any level of construction to heal and, and to put the cracks back together again. After the break, how that construction is going. Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I have inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Necessary Tomorrows, an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. After the earthquakes of last year, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan promised bold timelines for reconstruction while facing an election. God willing, within a year, we will finish these permanent residences and hand them over to our citizens who are the rightful owners. 
But those promises have, perhaps predictably, fallen short, says Al Jazeera's Rasul Sardar. Now, a year on, people have been living in container cities which are built by the government. And some have already moved to their new houses. So there are huge construction projects underway in several cities affected by the earthquakes. It is quite a challenging task to handle. The impact was colossal. The devastation was spread across provinces in Turkey, where more than 13 million people live. So around 13 million people have been affected and tens of thousands of buildings either have collapsed or have been heavily damaged. So the government has been able to provide basic shelter, food and medical support to those who have been affected. But realistically, I think it was wrong that the government uh, have promised uh, to build these whole cities, entire cities within a year. So that's an impossible goal to be achieved. In that sense, I think what the government has provided so far is not sufficient. Um, But to be fair, we cannot call it a complete failure as well. So the ambitious construction projects are underway and people are gradually uh, being moved into their permanent houses. I think it will take at least five years to rebuild these cities and, of course, probably more than a decade of the rehabilitation as millions were traumatized. Sammy also said that the timeline was likely to be much longer than what the government initially promised. The government has established like these housing projects and people have been taken care of and and put in housing, but their original homes, uh, you know, they haven't all been rebuilt because there was a lot of destruction. I think it will take years to rebuild so many cities. You know, you, you could drive literally for hours through the destruction zone and just see city after city after town after town where everything was either destroyed or damaged. Sammy says he asked Fatima, the mother of the Kurtz family he reported on, what her former neighborhood looks like today. I was speaking with her about, you know, how about your apartment blocks and those buildings? And she was saying, no, they haven't been built again, but they're waiting And they've got an incredible amount of bravery and patience, one has to say. They say, you know, we're fine, everything is fine. We just miss my son, Bilal, and we pray for him. The high death toll that followed the earthquakes has been widely blamed on buildings that were not constructed to meet standards put in place for such events. After the earthquakes, the government arrested some developers who had skirted regulations. Turkish authorities have at least 12 people in custody and issued warrants for more than 100 others. They include contractors, architects, and engineers connected with the construction of buildings that collapsed there. But Rasul says that it appears the government is not executing preventive building measures for future natural disasters. The current government has been in power for over two decades. Despite that fact, the government has done very little in terms of preparing for earthquakes, as it was very well known that Turkey lies on fault lines and earthquakes are are, are a solid reality of the country. So the decades of negligence caused such a high death toll. 
the building standards and the construction codes were not followed by municipality authorities or by the government officials. It was very obvious that the housing stocks in Turkey are not ready for powerful earthquakes. And unfortunately, there has been very little done by the officials to enhance the buildings or follow and observe the building standards and the construction codes. Twelve months later, for the Kurt family in Kahramanmaraş, the trauma will remain, even after the physical scars have been erased. Here's Fatma, the mother of the family. We're trying to support each other. I'm trying to be enough for my children who are left. At first I had a very hard time because of Bilal. Then I realized my other children were very bad. They got sick after a while. My son wrote a letter. He said he wanted to die. He loved Bilal a lot and missed him. He said, I want to die. I can't tell anyone my problems, but I know God gave us this life. We have to live. After I saw this letter, I started to hold on to life again for my children. I cry without showing them. I'm sad without showing them. I tell them that Bilal is in a good place. They know, but it's hard. And that's The Take. To hear more from Fatima and other earthquake survivors in Turkey and Syria about what it's meant to rebuild their lives, check out our digital interactive at aljazeera.com forward slash earthquakes. Again, that's aljazeera.com forward slash earthquakes. This episode was produced by Miranda Lynn and David Enders with Sonia Bagat, Sariyad Khalili, Ashish Malhotra, Khaled Sultan, Zaina Badr, Amy Walters, Nagin Oliayi, Veronisa Campana, Chloe K. Lee, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Alexandra Locke is the Takes executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs>